Before we begin, I'd like to dedicate this Torah class in the merit of the speedy and total recovery of a dear friend, Avraham ben Fedra. He recently contracted the coronavirus, and we hope and pray that the Almighty will heal him completely, and may he suffer no lingering or lasting effects. We're up to mitzvah number 63, and today we're going to do mitzvah number 63 and 64, and mitzvah number 431. And these are mitzvahs that relate to the convert, to the ger tzedek. Now, the word ger means, uh, literally means foreigner, but it's used in the Torah to mean also a convert. And there's two kinds of converts, of gers, if you will. There's the ger tzedek, the righteous convert, and there's the ger toshav, which is the resident convert. Both of these refer to Gentiles, to non-Jews that decided to adopt a new way of life. The Ger Tzedek, the righteous convert, someone who converts and becomes a Jew themselves. The Ger Toshav, the resident convert, is someone who doesn't want to become Jewish, but wants to renounce idolatry, wants to be, if you will, a righteous non-Jew, a Noahide, and they are allowed to, for example, live in Israel, and this laws that relate to this other ger, the ger toshav, the resident convert. Now, conversion itself is not a mitzvah of the 613, but it is a major subject of Torah law, exactly how to convert someone, and I would say it's even a bigger subject in Jewish philosophy. So I want to talk a little bit about the process of conversion before we get into the mitzvahs related to the convert, Namely, mitzvah number 63, to not oppress the convert. Mitzvah number 64, to not oppress the convert monetarily. And mitzvah number 431, to love the convert. So how does conversion work? So the Talmud tells us in the book of Yevamos on page 47a, and that is the largest section in Talmud that deals with conversion, about two pages from Yevamos 45 through 47. And it tells us if there is a non-Jew that seeks to convert in modern times, there is a process of sussing out whether someone is genuine and sincere and what is motivating them to want to convert. So they start investigating, they ask them questions, and they say to them, you know what you're signing up, the Jews suffer a lot of anti-Semitism, and they are persecuted, and they suffer... Why would you want to join this nation? And depending upon their response, that determines how exactly the court has to process the conversion candidate. If they are found to be a worthy candidate, then we undergo the process of converting them, we inform them of the mitzvahs, and then they are circumcised if they're male, and then they bring a sacrifice, and they are also immersed in the mikvah, and then they become Jewish like any other Jew. So it's interesting that the process is about making sure that someone really is legit, that they are converting for the right reasons, for their conviction and their belief that they want to join this nation and what this nation represents, and therefore, we, we ask questions. We want to know if, if maybe they love a Jew and they want to convert because of love. It's not really based upon a conviction in the, in the truth and in the merit 
of Torah, it's because they want a job in Hollywood or finance or they want connections. The Talmud tells us that in the times of David and Solomon, things were so good for the Jewish people. They were the envy of all the nations. And therefore, there were multitudes of Gentiles who wanted to convert, but not because they really wanted Judaism and Torah, because they wanted all the perks that came with being part of this nation, and therefore they were rejected. Talmud also tells us that in times of Messiah, when things really are scintillating for the Jewish people, that will not be grounds, or that will not be fertile grounds for converts. So it's interesting that... Much of what we do of how a convert candidate is processed is about determining whether or not they are legit. Now, when I was in yeshiva, I had the great fortune of spending a lot of time on these particular Talmudic sections and even writing some essays on it. So I remember reading something I found really interesting. A non-Jew wants to convert. They have to have circumcision. And they have to have immersion in a mikvah. In times of the temple, of course, they also have to bring a sacrifice. And they have to also accept Torah, accept all the laws. But the actual procedure is circumcision and immersion in the mikvah. And the commentaries talk about which one of these comes first. Or what's the exact interplay between circumcision and immersion in the mikvah. So I remember seeing one of the commentaries. He says that a conversion candidate wants to convert, has to do circumcision and immersion, and the order doesn't matter. They could immerse in the mikvah and then be circumcised, and then they would be Jewish, or they could circumcise and then immerse in the mikvah, and that would also be okay. It doesn't matter. The order doesn't matter. Either way, circumcision and immersion, you have to do both, and the order doesn't matter. However, one of the commentaries says like this, we circumcise first, and then we immerse them in the mikvah. Not the other way around. We don't do the mikvah first, and then the circumcision. We do the circumcision first, and then the immersion in the mikvah, in the ritual bathwaters. Why? If you could do it either way, why would you choose to do the circumcision first, and then to do the immersion in the mikvah? So he says something very interesting. He says, if you have an adult man before anesthesia, and you're going to circumcise them. That's a very painful enterprise. That's something that's very uncomfortable. And we're worried that we're going to circumcise someone, and they're going to have so much pain that they're going to regret their decision. They say, why do I need this problem? These Jews are crazy. They're mutilating me. I'm out. That's what we're worried about. And therefore, what's going to be if we immerse someone in the mikvah first, and then we circumcise them, and then they say, I'm not interested in this. Well, then they're Jewish, but now they've gone rogue. And that's a big problem. Whereas if we do it the opposite way, we circumcise them first, and then in the event that this sparks some backlash, you know what? We have an immersion in the mikvah, and then all we have is a circumcised Gentile who is who's running around but it's not a problem. We haven't lost one of our own. So this is interesting. And I think this probably guides a lot of the background behind this mitzvah. You have someone who is not biologically part of the Jewish family, but is joining. And we're very nervous. What's going to be? We have to embrace this person. We have to welcome this person. 
and we know that there is a risk that we could lose them. And once they're part of our family, we have to do whatever we can to not lose them. In fact, the Talmud even says that what happens with the inheritance? So there's a principle of Talmud. When someone converts, it's like a new baby. It's a new soul. It's a new person. Well, what about their previous identity? What about their previous family? No, that the previous family is not the previous. Now they're a new person, like a brand new baby. The immersion of the mikvah, it's like a brand new baby. So what's going to be? You have someone whose dad, whose biological dad is really wealthy. And now they immerse in the mikvah. The child is inspired. The child wants the Jewish people. The child wants to be part of the Abrahamic fraternity. They join the nation. Great. Well, now they're a new baby. So what about dad? Well, that's, 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 that's some foreigner. That's the sperm donor. I don't know who that is, but that's, that's not your dad. You're a new baby. Dad dies and leaves a massive estate. And now you would think that this child or this, this convert's a new baby. New baby, therefore, doesn't have any association with his previous life, has washed himself clean of the previous life, doesn't inherit daddy. What's going to be? Daddy leaves a lot of money. And the kid says, hmm, I have a choice. Do I stay with the Jewish people and lose out on all the money? Or do I go back to my old family and inherit the money? And therefore, the Talmud says that, no, we don't want to push people away. We say, you know what? You are a new baby. You are part of the family. And yes, you're dissociated from your previous self, but you know what? You could still inherit the money. That's okay. We're trying to kind of make sure we don't lose the people who have made that courageous decision to come join the Jewish people. So we have this process, circumcision, immersion of the mikvah. In the times of the temple, we have also a, uh, a sacrifice that's brought. Of course, women, you don't have the circumcision, you have everything else. But all of this is rooted in the idea of someone wanting, genuinely wanting to come join the Jewish people based upon what we stand for as a nation, not because of anything that is tangential, that is tertiary to what the nation has, not to any of the perks that we per- perhaps we represent, the fact that you want to join a Jewish community because it'll, it'll help you get a job or whatever. No, you you really have convictions based upon what the nation stands for. Someone like that's a great candidate. And uh, if they want to join the Jewish people, there is a process to do that. Now, an interesting idea the Talmud tells us. The Talmud says in the book of Shabbos, page 146a, it says that when Adam sinned, the first sin, the way it's described here in the Talmud, the serpent infused venom into humanity. That's the way it's described. But at Sinai, when the Jewish people got Torah, that expunged the venom from the Jewish people. And therefore, we have a species, humanity, that thanks to Adam and Eve's sin, they have this venom. And then at Sinai, one part of this species goes a separate way. So you have the Jews who have expunged the venom, and you have the non-Jews, they have not expunged the venom because they were not there at Sinai. And the Talmud says, well, what about converts? Which camp do they fall in? So the Talmud gives us an answer. It's maybe a cryptic answer. It says that the 
future converts, even though they themselves were not there, their antecedents were not at Sinai, but their souls, to a certain degree, were also present. And therefore, someone who, who converts ex post facto, they're able to absorb some of the Sinaitic holiness once they convert. But once someone converts, they become a Jew, like any other Jew, and there are special mitzvos that apply to them. Mitzvah number 63, not to oppress them. Again, this is someone who is maybe vulnerable. They're a little bit of an outsider. They have come and abandoned one community and joined a second community, and therefore we are required to make sure that we don't oppress them. We have to be extra vigilant to not trample on their sensitivities and to, to be gentle with them and to not oppress them in any way. And 64, a very related mitzvah, to not oppress them monetarily, to not take advantage of them monetarily. And finally, 431, the mitzvah to love the convert. Now, the commentaries point out that each one of these mitzvahs would have applied to this convert even without the actual verse and the mitzvah being told to them. Why? Because we're prohibited from oppressing any Jew either with words or with money. And of course, there's a mitzvah to love every Jew as well. So all these mitzvahs that are related to the convert would have been present even if we weren't told them once they convert their Jews, and therefore they are grandfathered in to all the mitzvahs related to Jews. And the commentaries all tell us that yes, what this is revealing to us is that there is an additional mitzvah not to oppress the convert. And God forbid if someone were to oppress the convert, they would be violating two prohibitions, not to oppress any Jew and not to oppress the convert. And similarly, the mitzvah number 64, to not oppress a convert monetarily, that would violate two separate mitzvahs. And the mitzvah, when someone loves every Jew, it's one mitzvah. When someone loves the convert, it is a second mitzvah. So let's talk a little bit about this mitzvah and what the reasons behind it are and maybe some of the details of this mitzvah. The Sefer Chinuch that guides us through the mitzvahs, he tells us some of the ideas that we mentioned earlier. When we have someone who's a Jew by choice, who entered our religion and became like a Jew, the Torah added a separate prohibition, a separate mitzvah. It already tells us in Leviticus 19 not to oppress any Jew, and now it's telling us a second mitzvah that someone who does not have connections, someone who doesn't have, so to speak, Jewish biological relatives, someone like that, we have to be extra vigilant to not oppress them, to not cause them pain in any way. Moreover, there is a concern that if they are oppressed, they may return to their previous life. And in fact, he quotes the Talmud. The Talmud tells us that you're not allowed to remind a sinner of their previous life, someone who's a sinner and and repents. You can't say, hey, don't you remember back in the day when you used to drive on Shabbos and back in the day we used to eat, you used to eat pig? You, what was that like? You don't say that to a Jew who was a sinner and then amended their ways. And you don't tell this to a convert who used to be an idolater and you don't tease them because then what's going to be, you may inspire them to go back to their ways. And the Talmud says something very scary. It says that one of the Torah sections of idolatry is juxtaposed to a Torah section on conversion. 
why are they next to each other? And the answer, says the Talmud, is because someone who does oppress a convert, it's akin to them committing idolatry. Why? How, if, God forbid, I were to oppress a convert, how is it as if I committed idolatry? Explains the Talmud. Someone goes to a convert and says to them, how much uh, flesh of swine is in your belly? How much pig have you eaten in your past? How many kisses have you given to the to the idol? And, of course, the convert, he's now offended. He's embarrassed. He feels out of place. And what's going to be? He may go back to the idol. They treated me better there. Why do I need this? And then what's going to be? God forbid that someone who became Jewish going to go back to the idols. And who inspired that? The person who embarrassed them. And therefore, every sin, so to speak, every idol worship that this convert does now after this person has offended them, really it's not their sin, it's the sin of the Jew who oppressed him and sent him back to where he came from. And therefore, it's it's really scary, God forbid, in the event that someone were to oppress a former idolater, all the sins that ensue from that behavior, from that oppression, are all going to be attributed towards the person who oppresses them. Then there's another idea. And that is that regardless of who we're talking about, the Torah wants us to rein in our negative character. And when we have the ability to exploit someone, they're vulnerable, they're weak, they don't have connections, they're foreigners, they don't know exactly how things work. And therefore, it's possible for us to take advantage of them. The Torah wants us to refine our character, to acquire all good, all sterling character so we can be crowned with all good character. And that's the objective. And therefore, if there's anyone in the world who you can exploit, you have to have an additional mitzvah to tell you withhold from exploiting them because you yourself have to make sure that you have wonderful character. Now, the Talmud in the book of Bab Metziah, page 59b, has a argument as to how many times of the Torah does the Torah warn us against mistreatment of converts? According to one opinion, it appears 36 times in the Torah. According to a second opinion, it appears 46 times in the Torah. And the commentators explain, you know, how could there be discrepancy? The question is, you know, what kind of convert are we talking about? But regardless, the Talmud points out that this idea to be warned to not mistreat the convert appears many dozens of times in the Torah. And the Talmud explains why. So it adds another interesting idea. Don't mistreat the convert. Don't mistreat the foreigner because you yourselves used to be foreigners in a foreign land. And therefore, what the Talmud says, the blemish that you have don't confer it upon others. People who live in glass houses, they say, shouldn't be throwing stones. You yourself, your nation, you experience what it's like to be an outsider, to be a foreigner, 
to be a little bit uncomfortable in a land that was not yours. You were immigrants. You were somewhat outcasts or you felt like outcasts when you were in Egypt. Don't confer that to someone else. Be super sensitive to every person you encounter to make sure that you're not going to highlight things that are going to make them feel bad or feel insecure or feel uncomfortable in any way. The Talmud adds an interesting adage. If there's someone who was executed, let's say say there's someone who was executed, they were hung. When you're talking to their family member, don't say, hey, can you hang that fish for me? Don't say anything that could evoke painful experiences in the person you're talking to. So, of course, this applies by the convert. Don't highlight the, the, you know, the bad story that they have that makes them feel bad, but really it applies to anyone. We should always be super sensitive. This is, again, an adjacent point of this mitzvah. We should always be super sensitive to a person to not highlight things that make them, that, that, that will make them uh, possibly feel bad. Now, mitzvah number 64, again, is a mitzvah to not oppress a convert monetarily. And again, the commentaries point out this applies to all Jews, but there's an additional mitzvah to not do this, to not cheat, to not oppress, and to not take advantage of the convert monetarily. And then we have mitzvah number 431, to love the convert, even though he's already included in the mitzvah of loving every Jew, there's an additional mitzvah to love the convert because we should have extra special love for such a person. And the Sefer Chinuch, in his commentary on mitzvah number 431, he adds a few more reasons as to why we should have such extra sensitivity to converts. He says, the Almighty selected the Jewish people to be his holy nation, and he guided us how we should behave, and he tells us that we should behave with benevolence, and with gentleness, and he warned us that we must be crowned with every beautiful and cherished character trait, and we should find favor in the eyes of all who look at us, and we should be such a nation of such dignity, of such nobility, that anyone who sees us should say, look at that, look at those people, look at these Jews, they are truly the chosen people, they are truly the nation of God. And then he has another point. And how much, this is a direct quote, and how much is it the way of pleasantness and cherishness to do kindness and to be generous to someone who abandoned his nation, who forfeited his family and came to join under the wings of a different nation? How much more so should we love him and should we applaud his choice of embracing the truth and hating the falsehood. And then he tells us that when we acquire this good character, the Almighty is going to give us all manners of goodness. By loving convert and by being good in every way, where we are unlocking divine goodness. And then he has another point. This is a wild idea. The Torah tells us that we have to love the convert so much. 
and then he quotes the Talmud. The Torah is equating the love, the requisite love that we must have for the convert with the love that we have to have for God. Both of them, it says, you shall love God, you shall love the convert. How much love must we indeed confer onto the convert and really all strangers and all newcomers and all people that feel a little bit out of place? And then he adds, again, the adjacent point. We should learn from this beautiful mitzvah to have mercy on every person. Someone comes to our city and this is not his hometown. This is not his place of origin. It's not where he was born. This is not where his family's from. Treat him with extra sensitivity and extra love and extra mercy. And we should act like God. God is someone who gives kindness. We should model ourselves after that. We should emulate that and we should reach out and help all those who need aid and provide comfort and mercy for all those that are vulnerable. Am I doing that? The Almighty indeed will treat us the same way and we will be the receptacles of divine mercy and divine blessing. We know the pain of what it was like to be an outsider. We spent several hundred years as foreigners in Egypt. But you know what? That's not where our trail of dispersion ended. We have had experiences in all kinds of lands and all kinds of cultures, in all kinds of places. And we have been singed with the great pain of being the outsider, of being surrounded by foreigners and not being sure and not being certain and having that pain in your heart. What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to act? And feeling uncomfortable? We should identify with those people and we should make sure that we make other people feel comfortable when they are in that situation. Now, there's an interesting teaching in the Talmud regarding Yisra, regarding Jethro. Jethro makes a very dramatic appearance in chapter 18 of Exodus. We, of course, meet him earlier in Exodus when Moshe marries his daughter, Tzipporah. But after the Exodus and after the splitting of the sea and the Jewish people are ready for Sinai, Jethro shows up. Chapter 18 of the book of Exodus. And Moshe regales him with the stories of the Exodus. And then we read a verse. This is 18.9. Vayichad Yisro. Yisro experienced something. Vayichad. So the Talmud says, what does this mean? Does it mean he experienced great joy? He rejoiced? Does it perhaps mean that he Vayichad might mean that he took something very sharp, namely, he took a sharp knife, he circumcised himself, he converted. A third opinion, the Talmud says, Vayichad is related to the word chidudim, which means goosebumps. He got goosebumps. Now, why would he get goosebumps from hearing the stories? Yisro used to be an Egyptian. So he has Egyptian pedigree. And therefore, says the Talmud, when he hears all these amazing stories, the Jews are leaving Egypt. They're having the miraculous exodus. And they're trouncing the Egyptians. Yisro hears that, and he gets these sad goosebumps. Oh no, all my former friends, all my colleagues, all my Egyptian people that I used to be associated with, 
they suffered. And therefore, he had a bad experience. He had this kind of sad experience, this goosebumps of pain and sadness because of the suffering of his former people. And then the Talmud tells us, if you have a convert that joins the Jewish nation from a different nation, for 10 generations, you have to make sure to not embarrass that other nation because they still feel an association with that nation. You have someone, I don't know, they were a Hindu. And then they see the light that comes from the Jewish people. Their grandkids will still feel bad if you make fun of the Hindus. Ten generations you have to wait until they really feel comfortable with the Jewish people. So Yisro, of course, he's so excited that the Jewish people, his nation that he's going to join, his son-in-law is a great hero. They triumph over the evil Egyptians. But he got a little bit of sadness, a little bit of goosebumps, because his former nation, the nation of the Egyptians, suffered. And they have to be to really walk very gingerly and tread very lightly because people's sensitivities run very, very deep. It takes 10 generations for someone to fully integrate in their new nation. How much sensitivity is indeed required of us. Now, there's an interesting story in the Talmud that I think is also relevant to this subject matter. This is one of the most interesting and sad stories and tragic stories in all of Talmud. And this is telling us a story about Rabbi Yochanan. Now, Rabbi Yochanan should not be confused with the other Rabbi Yochanans. This is Rabbi Yochanan, the Amora, who comes in the middle of the third century of the Common Era. So he's already after the writing of the Mishnah, and he's going to be one of the first Amoraim, the first authors of the Talmud. But the majority of authors of the Talmud, of course, live in Babylon. He's still living in Israel. So he's going to, he's considered the architect of the Jerusalem Talmud, the first version of the Talmud before the Babylonian Talmud was written several hundred years later. So he's the greatest rabbi in maybe the world, but certainly in Israel. And he was bathing once in the Jordan River. And there was a man who was also bathing in the Jordan River. His name was Reish Lakish. And he was a bandit. He was a leader of a, of a band of marauders. He was, he, he was a thief. And he was so strong. His physical prowess was so intense. He was able to jump over the river. It's not clear if he jumped over the river, he jumped in the river. He displayed tremendous physical prowess. And he starts to attack Rabbi Yochanan. Rabbi Yochanan is so impressed with this physical specimen, he tells him, you have tremendous strength. You have tremendous vigor. You should use your strength for Torah. Why are you a thief? You have so much potential to be a great Torah giant. Why are you using your strength for these bad uses? You should use it for Torah. That's what he tells Rish Lakish. Rishlakish looks at this great rabbi, and this great rabbi was, there's descriptions of the Talmud of how beautiful he was. He was incredibly beautiful. So he sees this beautiful rabbi, and he says to me, hey, you're telling me that I'm wasting my strength on, on crime? You are wasting your beauty on a man. My strength should be for Torah. Your beauty should be for women. That's what he tells him. You're so beautiful. 
you should be a you should be a woman. Like it's it's a waste to have such beauty on a man. So Biochla makes the following proposal. He says to them, Okay, here's the deal. I have a sister that's even more beautiful than me. And she's single. If you commit yourself to go study Torah, if you dedicate your strength for Torah, I'll convince my sister to marry you. And indeed, they made an agreement. Rish Lachish committed himself to study Torah, and Rabbi Yochanan convinced his sister to marry Rish Lachish. Now, after he made that commitment, he's still in the water. He tries to jump out of the water like he used to do, and he already can't do it. He made this mental commitment to dedicate his strength to Torah, and his strength was already removed, so to speak, from his physical prowess. Anyhow, so Rish Lachish marries the, the sister of, of Rabbi Yochanan, and now he starts training him to go study. This guy's going to be, this guy's a great candidate to be a great Torah scholar. So they start from the basics. They start from scripture and they teach him, teaches him scripture and Mishnah. And before you know it, Rabbi Yochanan's prediction is prescient. The second greatest scholar in the land is his brother-in-law, the former bandit, the former criminal, the former thief. Rish Lakish is now one of the great scholars in the land. And they would study together. What an amazing story. One day, they are in the academy, and the head of the academy is Rabbi Yochanan, and his assistant, his, you know, the next in line is Reish Lakish, and they're dealing with a very intricate dispute. What's the dispute? There's a sword, or, or a dagger, or maybe a knife. There is some sort of implement, a weapon, if you will, and they're trying to figure out when does it become susceptible to impurity. So essentially what the Talmud is describing here is that when you finish a product, only a finished product can be can become impure. If it's still under manufacturing, if you're still making it, it's not a finished product, it doesn't become impure. That's the law, the laws of impurity, very complex laws, but that's the, the upshot. The upshot is that it has to be finished. So what does it take for it to finish the product, to make it, to make it really useful. So they're discussing it. So, well, you have to finish making it. So when is it considered you finishing, finishing making it? So Rabbi Yochanan proposes that when you put this item into the fire and you're, you're, you're now polishing it or whatever it is, you're finishing making it, you put it in the fire. Once you put it in the fire, that's when it's completed and that's when it's now useful and now it can become impure. And Reish Lakish says he disagrees. He says no. You have to take it out of the fire, and then you have to scour it in water. If it's in the fire, it's not useful yet. You have to take it out of the fire and put the water in it. So Rabbi Yochanan turns to his colleague, his brother-in-law, his best friend, and says to him, you know what? You probably are right in this one. After all, you used to be a bandit. You used to be a thief. You would know... How indeed a knife becomes useful. That's what he said to him, like it's kind of this, this sharp barb that he says to him. You're, you're an expert. You know weapons. You know, you had that history. You had that batch story. So Rish Lakish fights back and he says to him, like, what have I gained? I used to be a bandit. I committed myself to Torah. And now you're still insulting me and still calling me a bandit or still highlighting, referencing this particular episode. What have I gained? I used to be called the head of the bandits, and now today I'm still called the head of the bandits. 
nothing's changed. So Rebbechah says, nothing's changed? What do you mean? You were distant from God and now you're close to God. Anyhow, they got into a fight. And they both felt bad. And eventually this actually caused both of them to kind of go in separate ways. They got sad, they got depressed, and one of them died, and the next one died as well. It's a it's a sad end of the story. But I was thinking that this this story really highlights the tremendous sensitivity that is being conveyed in this mitzvah. Of course, it applies specifically to the convert, someone who's changed their life and abandoned their previous homeland, their previous nation, their previous family, their previous way of life, and they come to join the Jewish people. And now us, we're the incumbents of this nation. And we are told we have to be extra sensitive because we have no idea what that person's really going through. We have no idea how sensitive we have to tread to make sure that we don't offend them, to make sure we don't embarrass them. And of course, this applies also to anyone really that's made a change or anyone that's going through something that they are particularly sensitive to. We have to be aware of their sensitivities and we have to, again, be very careful, very vigilant to not embarrass them in any way. You know, God forbid, if someone loses a child, that's something that, of course, it's a great tragedy. Everyone acknowledges that it's a great tragedy. What people don't realize is that the people who themselves have gone through such an experience, that's not something that they could ever do away with. That's not something that they forget about after a year or two years. That is always omnipresent on their mind. And of course, for us, you know, we're not living through that. So we have no idea of what that person's going through. So you could say a flippant comment. You could talk in a way and you're not aware. You know, of course, you're not intending any any bad. But this message is telling us you have to always be vigilant to make sure that you don't say something that's going to offend someone or cause them pain. People, God forbid, who are struggling with fertility issues. Today, like a huge percentage of couples that want to conceive either because of biological reasons or maybe they're too old, whatever it is, they suffer, they experience infertility. So you can have a group of friends and one of them is suffering silently with infertility and the rest of them are saying, well, what kind of diapers do you like? Do you like the Pampers or the Huggies? Or isn't daycare, what a hassle. Now we got to, we can't, we have to wear masks when we go pick up our kids. Or you're complaining about the fact that your kids woke you up in the middle of the night. And what you don't realize is that that person who's there experiencing this would give up their their left arm, maybe even the right arm, maybe even both arms, to be able to suffer the pain that you're complaining about. And you are not aware. Of course, no one intentionally thinks about that, but that's not what this mission is about. This is not about, of let's not directly cause pain to someone. It's about you have to adopt a way of life that you're always aware and always sensitive and always thinking about what that other person is going through to make sure that you don't cause them any pain in any way. I had a conversation with someone recently. They lost a parent a couple of months ago, maybe like a four or five months ago. But their parent wasn't a young parent. It was someone in the, you know, the 80s maybe, maybe, you know, like mid-80s. So it's not like someone who just died 
young. It's not something that we would classify as as uh, as a tragedy per se. It's been a couple of months. So in my head, the way I would process such a thing is like, okay, you know, it's it's painful, but people get old and they die. And of course, we want to confer our condolences and we want to comfort them or whatever way we can. But okay, it's this is just the way of life. But I encountered such visceral pain. To me, this was like an eye-opening experience. This is someone who's still feeling like they're burying their mother right now. And I think it's, it's a lesson to me, it's a lesson for all of us, that we cannot underestimate what someone else is going through. If you have something, you could be happy with it. You should be happy with it. You should be thankful for it. Don't flaunt it in a way that's going to cause other people to have pain, to have sadness, to have envy, to have anger towards you. I know my parents, thank God, they have nine children. They are very careful to not like post pictures of the whole family. Even in you walk into their house, you won't find a picture of the whole family. Think about it. Most houses that have pictures that are of their kids, of their dogs, of, you know, everyone likes to say, this is my child, this is my pride, these are my children. They don't do that. You want to find a picture of their family, you have to go into their bedroom. Why? It's this idea. We, we have so much. We have so much to be thankful for, but not everyone has that. And therefore, we ought to be sensitive to make sure that we don't just present that to everyone. Look how beautiful our kids are. Look how happy everyone is. And you're so mad. You're so sad and miserable. And of course, it's not intentional, but it happens. You know, that's uh, Facebook, right? I'm not a big Facebook guy. I don't use Facebook at all. But what is Facebook? It's everyone presenting themselves in their best light, you know, with the best angle of their picture. Some people, you know, my, my good side is my left side. Or some people, my good side is my right side. So you always look great. The food is always fantastic. Their vacations are always better than you. And then everyone else is scrolling through it. What I imagine is that when you see that, of course, maybe you feel good. Maybe if some, some people are, are just great people and they're always happy for other people. But I would say that the average person, when they see other people just doing fantastically well and no one puts their, their depression or their fights with their spouses or, no one puts that. Everyone presents themselves in this in this scintillating way, this this facade of 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 total happiness and serenity. Everyone else just feels bad or inadequate or sad or or lacking. Why would you do that? Why would you cause other people to experience to, or to undergo that experience? That's this mitzvah. Be sensitive to others. Embrace your brethren, regardless of their background. If they're biological Jews, we love them. If they're converts, they're also like a spiritual descendant, the spiritual heir of Abraham. And you have to doubly love them. And you have to be extra, super sensitive and careful to make sure that people who could potentially feel uncomfortable, feel out of place, feel like an outsider, feel maybe lacking in whatever way it may be, be sensitive to that. Be aware of that, and don't cause, God forbid, anyone any pain. As always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing any questions, any comments, and any feedback.